All right, everybody. Welcome, everyone, to our AI and its financial implications space sponsored by Versus AI. Given this is a sponsored space and has an advertisement in it, it's important to note some of the terms of the space. So while we get our speakers up here, and since this space is recorded, I'm going to read a few of those disclaimers now. And they will also be pinned up here to the top of the space in just a moment. All right, so this space is not financial advice. Unusual Wales Inc. is not a registered as a securities broker dealer or an investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or any state securities regulatory authority. The stock market is risky and any trade or investment is expected to have some or total loss. Please do research before taking any trade. Do not use this information for financial decisions or for investing. You should consult your legal or tax professional regarding your own specific situation. Of note, Unusual Whales was paid by Winning Media Inc., who is a client of Versus AI, to host this space. This space is sponsored by Versus AI. Additionally, Unusual Whales is not responsible for any promotion. It does not verify the authenticity of the promotion or partnership, nor the merits of the individual promotion. There is no endorsement of any one promotion. Please do your own diligence and research before following any one promoted post. Again, do not consider a promotion of a post to be advocacy for the sponsor of the post. Nothing discussed as well should be construed as an offer to sell a solicitation of an offer to buy or a recommendation of any security or any third party. So to get us rolling today, folks, this is a new kind of space that we're trying out, working with some AI experts and companies to delve into a larger topic. Today, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence, the changing world of tech, and the intersection of AI and finance. We're excited to have these great speakers who will be here to provide their thoughts and expertise. So with that, I want to welcome everyone for starting their afternoon with us today. Thanks for coming. Now, as those who frequent our spaces know, I like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So as we go, all panelists, please feel free to discuss openly, add your thoughts to any given topic. The only request that I have is that you utilize the Twitter space emoji hand raise just to avoid any background noise and overlap, et cetera, while others are speaking. And as I go through our introductions here, please feel free to plug anything you want. We'd be happy to also pin that at the top of the space. So without further ado, we are very grateful and fortunate to have many speakers so well-versed in artificial intelligence and the ever-growing list of use cases for AI. So I want to go ahead and just jump in here and kind of go down our panelists to give just a little intro to who we'll be having here today, lending us their expertise. First, we've got Alex Rabeman. He's a self-described hack reporter specializing in math, data visualization, and working to accelerating AI development at Agent Ops AI. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Uh, I guess uh, I'll just kind of drop a quick 15, 20-second intro about myself. So I'm the co-founder of a, an AI startup called Agent Ops. 
We're building observability, testing, and debugging tools for AI agents. You can think of an AI agent as an autonomous program, uh, basically a brain powered by GPT. And it can do just about anything on the web. Very, very powerful, very cool, very experimental. Uh, besides that, I'm extremely active in the San Francisco hackathon scene. So out here, there's a hackathon nearly every single week or weekends. I usually go there, just check out all the cool projects going on, uh, offer my little reviews. Uh, and on the side, uh, yeah, building a lot of AI projects, has a history as a machine learning engineer and data scientist, wrote a few papers. Uh, yeah, very happy to be here. Very happy to have you, Alex. Thank you for coming. Next, we've got Gabriel Rene. He's the CEO of Versus AI, the sponsor of today's space. He's also the executive director at Special Web Foundation and a self-proclaimed renaissance man from the future. Welcome, Gabriel. Thanks, everyone. It's great to be here. Appreciate everyone showing up on a, on a Wednesday morning. Um, excited to have this opportunity to chat with you and the rest of our amazing panel. Um, as mentioned, I'm the CEO of Versus. Versus is building a next generation uh, AI operating system platform. It's called Genius uh, to generate um, basically generally intelligent agents that do not use the current frameworks uh, based on LLMs and neural nets, but based on a breakthrough uh, in neuroscience uh, that reflects how biological intelligence learns. And we think this is about to pave the road to a significant uh, increase in the capabilities uh, of AI agents uh, and allow millions of developers to build solutions like uh, to allow the whole world to grow smarter. Good deal. Excited to get your input today, Gabriel. Thank you. Next, we've got Eric Brynjolfsson, an all-time great. Professor Eric is the Jerry Yang and Akiko Yamazaki Professor and Director of Stanford's Digital Econ Lab, among many other things, including the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI and a professor at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. We're honored to have such an expert that bridges that gap between AI and the economy on this space. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for coming. All right, looks like Eric may have actually dropped off, so we'll get his pitch once we're able to get him back up here. Moving right along, and then we'll kick back to Eric once he's back. We've got Heather Cooper. Heather's an educator at Visually AI, working largely in generative AI. She helps discuss generative AI spaces, such as this one, a little bit, and hosts some of generative spaces at X herself. Happy to have her, and I'm really excited to pick your brain about some of the generative AI uses. Heather, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Heather Cooper, again, and I'm actually a pharmacist um, who transitioned to writing online and content creation. Um, in, in the course of that, I, I focus mainly on visual content and, you know, visual storytelling. I love trying new tools and I just um, experimenting with different types of generative AI to create all types of content. So I teach people how to use these tools because I don't have a background in design or art um, or marketing and content writing. So I do all these things and try to show other people how they can do it too, to create content or productivity or just creating beautiful visuals. So that's mainly what I do and I teach a lot. I have a course on Maven 
um, for content creation, like visual content 101, anybody can use it. Uh, anybody can take it, whether you use Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, any types of tools. And I'll go over how to use multiple tools together. I enjoy combining things so that you can make various different types of content. I have a space every Friday. Please, you know, stop in and see us. It's a generative AI Friday re recap every Friday at 5 p.m. I have a great panel and several of them are here. Ali, Ali Jules, Salma, I'm a, I'm a, I'm sorry, Salma Apicar. I also have Matt Wolf, uh, Linus Eckenstam, Rob Lennon, our regular panelist, and uh, Taylor Peterson. So we have a great time and we just kind of go over a little bit of everything that is related to generative AI. So please stop in on Friday if you have a chance, 5 p.m. Eastern. Definitely check that out, folks. And thanks again for coming, Heather. I'm excited to get your input today. Next, we've got Stu Fortier, the founder of Type AI from Y Combinator Winter 23 cohort. He has a newsletter that's growing, went to the Galapagos with Richard Dawkins, and has had numerous startups. Welcome. That was a great intro. I, I was not ready for the Dawkins reference, so you've done your homework. Um, thank you for hosting. Excited to chat about AI. Uh, like Nicholas said, I'm a founder, entrepreneur. I think my mind goes towards how to make AI usable and useful in the kind of like marketplace of products and ideas. How do you actually take this research, package it up in something that's very useful for folks? So our product type is an AI first document editor, really designed to handle the first, uh, an AI first kind of writing workflow all the way from, you know, ideation to really polishing a piece of writing. We think there's a very unique workflow and interface to be built. Uh, there. And I think what we're doing, the philosophy of what we're doing applies to almost any problem space that AI is now capable of moving into. So very excited to chat about, you know, commercializing AI, building product and uh, anything else that comes up. Really excited for your input, Stu. Thank you. Next, we've got the AI solopreneur. No AI space would be complete without AI solopreneur by Ollie. He uses chat GPT to focus on new products and market fits and has worked on the product side of AI. It's a pleasure having him. Welcome, Ollie. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I'm a second C creator today, so it's, uh, it's two of us now. Yeah, so as you said, like, um, I mainly started concentrating on um, content creation and building products around that, but really trying to educate like the kind of regular person on how to actually implement AI. Because, because I found like most AI content was either like way too technical or not really like actionable. So I'm really trying to focus on help like the smaller business or solopreneur business to implement AI to just yeah, become more productive or honestly just to start creating whatever's inside your head. Good deal. I'm really excited to hear your input there and kind of uh, pick your brain about how how the general population can use AI to better themselves or the companies they're working on. So with all of that said, folks, I'm going to dive right in here. So Eric, I want to start with you here. We've heard a lot, particularly by investors, that there's currently an AI bubble. For reference, numerous AI tangential stocks like Microsoft, NVIDIA are zooming past all-time highs, yet Bedrock's capital Jeff Lewis has said there's a massive AI bubble that is, quote, holding up the market and could burst. 
So Eric, how do you contextualize the economics of AI and how it changes the financial word to start? So I would make a distinction between what's happening in the financial market, what's, what's happening in the real economy. Um, this is just the early days of a much bigger wave of transformation of the real economy. Um, productivity was up a lot last quarter. I expect it to grow a lot more in the coming decades as we really see a, a transformation, a lot of work and employment. That said, there are a lot that's, that's very frothy in, in, this, in the stock market, and there are companies that are clearly you know, overhyped and others that are underhyped. There's going to be a lot of transformation. I'm not a stock picker, so I'm not going to try to uh, say which, which are which, but um, there's just a, a frenzy that is somewhat disconnected from the economic fundamentals. As some of these bubbles burst for a few of the the, the, the stocks, I, I wouldn't take that as a negative sign for the underlying capabilities of these models. I think that what we're going to see in 2024 is going to be even more transformative than what we've already seen in 2023. Thank you, Eric. And we'll definitely touch on some of the points you made there as well a little later on as we kind of get into things. But for now, Gabriel, as a player in the space with the sponsor versus AI, you have a direct understanding of how the market has accepted and understood AI. How do you see the average investor approaching this field? And do you think that there is a bubble? And I'd also be interested, Gabriel, if you could also speak to Eric's points on the real world of AI and the applicability of the AI models in 2024. Well, I, I guess there's several questions there and they all sort of intersect. Um, the first one is that um, investors don't understand AI. Um, investors are doing FOMO farm buying right so the the first the first thought here is that um i don't understand it but it sounds really big um and so i don't want to miss it so i'll buy a portion um as a result uh if you look at you know retail investors buying stocks in the in the so-called ai market uh in the public markets the truth is that none of the generative AI companies, which are leading the charge um, on this next generation of, of, of AI are in the public markets. Um, they're all privately held. They're all invested in by VCs and by big tech you know, strategic funds like Google and Nvidia and Salesforce and Amazon and the rest. And so there's a bit of a misinterpretation. Um, and so, you know, obviously get in where you can fit in is sort of the, the, the narrative here. But when you're looking at highly disruptive technologies the, the, in the beginning of an early wave of their, let's call it commercialization, um, it's very dangerous to pick vertical players. So if you wanna invest in like a C3.ai or you wanna invest in a Palantir or whatever company that's now added AI next to their name that used to be a biotech firm or, or whatever, the reality is if you look at what the foundation model players that are actually the real disruptors in the space, uh, like OpenAI, like Anthropic, like Cohere, and a handful of the others, their mission for the most part is to build artificial general intelligence. And so today, anyone that is building vertical solutions runs the risk, as we just saw last week when OpenAI came out with their new uh, GPT uh, app uh, builder uh, sort of storefront, that a tons of, of startups that were building capabilities that they thought were unique suddenly became part of the general capabilities that were en enabled by one of these players and essentially wiped out 
their market by enabling 100 competitors to pop up overnight. And so we've seen this sort of time and time again. So one, um, I think that public markets don't understand the AI space. They don't know how to invest in the space. Uh, and so if there's a bubble, um, it's because it's speculation on uh, on a lack of understanding and people you know, just hoping to sort of be part of the gold rush. Um, when things go well or bad for players like NVIDIA, people will buy and sell, but NVIDIA is not an AI company. Microsoft's not an AI company. Google's not an AI company. These are all big tech companies, either in hardware or software, online services um, that are using AI as a tool, but they're not the developers of artificial intelligence. So I think there's just a sort of large disconnect between accessibility to where the real growth will happen um, and this is what I think is unique about Versus is that we're one of the only players in the space that is a next-gen company that's building next-gen AI solutions. Um, that's a horizontal player, um, which is really where you want to try to be able to invest outside of doing a bit of a portfolio play, um, which does require then a lot of education and knowledge. Um, I think the the last point I'll make on, on this, and it, happy to, it, if I miss one of your questions, to, to, uh, if you could clarify, um, is that um, Moore's law, the idea that computation, basically the cost of computation doubles every you know, 12 to 24 months um, has been consistent you know, for decades and decades now. And if anything, AI has demonstrated that it appears to be speeding up. That means that technology gets better and cheaper, let's say roughly every 18 months to the degree that uh, and, and in such a uh, at such a, a sort of pace that regardless of whether you're in a recession uh, or the markets are up or down, um, the pace of technology c continues consistently. And so that's why if you just if you just bought Microsoft or Google or Facebook or Apple and never did anything, didn't never sold, that eventually those successes have been the largest successes in investment history, um, as opposed to merely buying, say. Um, you know, resources or oil or, you know, sort of the, the, the whales, if you will, of, of the last generation. So the new whales, um, the AI of the AI wave are, are, are just little minnows right now. And so what you want to do is, you know, try to find how to get in at a horizontal position um, and just wait. So if the market sells, it's because they're emotionally reacting to whatever, whatever who knows, whatever wind is blowing on, on any given Tuesday. Um, but, uh, th that will have been a mistake for the large part because those, the companies that can hang on or, and or transform from, you know, verticals to more horizontal or can capitalize in their vertical by applying this next generation capabilities, which no one really has yet, um, done that. It's only really been a year. So we haven't really seen a whole lot of real applications at any scale, particularly in enterprise. Uh, I don't think that, um, uh, that there will be have the markets will just be doing their thing irrationally, and the smart investor will just place some bets and hold. I think that was put really well, Gabe. Thank you. So I do want to touch on one thing you mentioned a little earlier on there. Um, Gabe spoke about the the private VC funding and AI, and in terms of startups and funding. AI first investment does appear to be booming. In quarter three of 2023, the dollars raised for AI companies reached $17.9 billion, according to PitchBook and Bloomberg, while funding totals you know, across global venture funding fell yet again. Uh, Stu and Alex 
pick on you to a little bit here. Do you foresee this trend continuing? Will investors continue to fund this AI development and AI startups, or will they be gobbled up by larger players like Google and Microsoft? Maybe Alex first, and then we'll kick to Stu after. I can't entirely speak to investor appetites, but I can kind of talk about the trends I've been seeing, at least on the ground here in San Francisco. So uh, there's just an enormous amount of like investor, I guess like VC interests in uh, startups, but uh, it seems to be also being concentrated in, how should I say, infrastructure plays, the picks and shovels of the world, so on and so forth. Uh, so there's kind of like a, a bifurcation of classes. So you have like indie hackers who are kind of building chat with your PDF variants, which are making like very, very good lifestyle money. So you could say like, you know, half a million to a million a year, talk your PDF, nothing crazy there. Uh, but there's like a lot more kind of like anticipatory risk from folks who are kind of building anything beyond that, uh, largely because like this is a world with quote unquote no moats. Uh, so that, that means to say like there's nothing stopping like, you know, if you're a pharmacy, you know, and you want to build a chatbot on GPT, like there's not really much stopping your engineering team from doing that versus like a startup that might specialize in that. Um, so people are always kind of worried about that. And then also like, you know, as mentioned before, like these GPT marketplaces, um, Everybody thought that they would be safe from OpenAI, but it turns out OpenAI is kind of gearing themselves more towards distribution than anyone thought they would. Uh, but secondarily, uh, I think kind of the second question was like, how, how is kind of like enterprise and like kind of the big players taking these things on? Um, the answer is they're throwing a lot of money and resources at AI in general. So uh, Microsoft and uh, Google are kind of the two big players and some hidden stuff going on, but behind the scenes at Meta, I don't have too much information on that. But um, essentially, like Microsoft is trying to incorporate AI products into their entire tool suite. So Windows 11, I think, has Cortana, which is basically a GPT wrapper built in automatically right now. Uh, but secondarily, they're building kind of AI tools and agents into Microsoft Office. This is kind of a new venture they're working on. Uh, and then Google, they're working on Bard. And I don't really need to say much more about that. But uh, Google is actually no stranger towards building AI into like every single core product they have. Android is basically the test bed for AI every time they're doing almost every new launch is, you know, uh, it's a small feature that's getting added to Android, uh, but not many people notice it. So it's like OCR, things like you can call restaurants and uh, have a, a bot actually make the reservation for you, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, so I, I guess from like a market standpoint, I don't have too much information, but I can say like what's going on on the ground. Uh, a lot of kind of uncertainty and people who are raising funding I usually have kind of like a very strong team or some very interesting moat that makes them stand out. Yeah, and I'll, I'll expand on that. I My experience on the ground very much mirrors Alex. When we were raising our seed round earlier this year, we raised just around 2.8 million. Um, yeah, the primary reason we got rejected was for what Alex said, right? Like, what are the moats in a world of you know, generally capable language models in a world where OpenAI is going hard on product. Um, we want to write checks into kind of infrastructure plays and like dev tooling and things like that. And I think that's likely to continue. And then the huge funding rounds will go to companies that are training their own foundational models. Um, but our, our bend on the whole thing, you know, we could be wrong, of course, has always been that this new technology does two things. One, it enables a general product like ChatGPT to be able to manage a huge range of, of use cases. There's a, uh, like Gabriel said earlier, there's a generality and a horizontal nature to these 
uh, what these AI products can now do. Um, but two, the other thing we believe it does for certain problems, it raises the floor on what a vertical solution can be. So you can now build, when, for example, we're building a writing product, right? So pretty much everyone looks at what we're building understandably and thinks, well, this is just going to be like Microsoft Word plus, you know, some AI features and some autocomplete. But in our mind, the AI first writing tool is going to just look different and going to evolve into something much, much more capable than Microsoft Word plus AI or Google Docs plus Duet. Um, it's going to be something that really feels novel. The floor is basically going to be raised. So uh, in the same way that moving from the typewriter to the word processor, uh, there, there's not a, some of it rhymes, but a lot of it's quite different. So I think like that's, I think there will be problem spaces where there's a lot of venture money going in where a, a vertical product can actually be much better. Um, but frankly, I think they're fewer and far between. And, and like Alex said, a lot of the uh, interest will go towards dev tooling, infrastructure, and certainly foundational uh, companies, training models. That's kind of my read. Thank you, Stu and Alex. So I do want to kick over to Ola here. Alex mentioned that there was, quote, no moat in AI. Now, Ola, do you see that in your own software practices and projects? Um, I'm thinking about that a lot, actually. And I think I agree. So that's why I'm mainly focused on building uh, digital products, which are more in the education space, because it's much easier to um, kind of carve out your niche there. Um, but I'm planning to go more down the software route, but it's really not where I'm coming from originally. So um, I just kind of look at the market in general. And I thought that most people overlooked one of the biggest opportunities just to um, deliver like basic education. Because if you if you talk to like a regular person uh, who wants to build a business, for example, most of them, they are still like so early in their journey that just helping them with uh, the basics and just helping them to basically get started, it's uh, already a huge step for them. So I, I kind of focused on that because I also don't have a super technical background in terms of like, I, I can't code. Uh, I'm like fucking around with some no, co no code stuff, but um, like my background is way less technical. So I approached it from, from this perspective and really started to build um, solutions that are quite simple but effective to, to really come up with workflows that you can use every day that really like make your everyday easier and faster. So that's where I'm at. But yeah, from a, from a software perspective, um, and if you think about mode, I think that's the, the big question here, right? Especially um, if you look at stuff like the GPTs now, and you have this like popular narrative on on Twitter or an X now. It's like, oh, it's it's the new app store. Like it will mint millionaires tomorrow. And I think like it's kind of questionable, right? Because um, if you think about mode, it's it's really hard to de to to defend a product like this if you don't have any uh, proprietary data. So yeah, I think it's, we'll see in the next month like where this where this is going. And uh, it was already mentioned that. We are seeing like kind of the first wave of the uh, first extinction wave right now after the last um, ChatGPT update. So yeah, it's going to stay interesting. Thank you, Olin. And you're mentioning there, uh, you know, kind of about your background. I think that does give you a pretty unique perspective on individual use case for people as well. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have you here to give that perspective. Now, kind of moving along here, Heather, the evolution of generative AI 
just kind of in general has been explosive over the last few years. And so, Heather, I'm curious from your perspective here, what recent developments to generative AI are you most excited about, given the difficulty in finding niche, given funding trends, the plethora of projects and more? Um, I, I think the thing that excites me the most is the ability to use multimodal, um, you know, apps and to be able to, you know, take a picture of something and get instructions about that particular picture with vision and chat GPT, or how do you, if you want to start a business talking about different the everyday people that dream about, you know, starting their own business or just any type of product or it, educating themselves. Now we have it at our fingertips that we can use these things. If you want to design a logo, if you want to look for a name, if you want to even think of a product to sell or to um, a career to go into, what's a roadmap that you can use, all these different things we have at our um, fingertips now. And it's moved so fast that now the combination of all these things together, just with the latest uh, ChatGPT update, is just amazing because, you know, I spent about 24 hours awake just kind of playing around, just thinking about GPTs that I could build for myself to help me do things faster for my own productivity to create content. And I think that it feels like the walls are coming down a little bit and barriers um, are, you know, being over overcome now because anybody, if it's, you can do whatever you want to do. If you decide that you want to learn something, you can go ahead and do it. If you want to uh, create something, if you want to, you know, learn a new type of art or music or whatever, you can, a language, you can do that now. If you want to build an app, you can now have the ability to learn what types of apps would help, how to build it, even building it along with GPT, as a GPT with the GPT builder, it's kind of teaching you as you go through how people put together an app. You don't know how to code, but you can still overcome that and use other technology to help you. So the ability just to do these different things and also to have them all integrated is just, that's what I'm most excited about. And it seems like that's speeding up too, where there's just more uh, platforms where you can do all of these different things and you don't have to wait anymore. It's just like take advantage of the opportunity right now. Holly, I see your hand there. Yeah, um, I'm totally on the same page. And that's like also so exciting for me because like I have a, a background six or seven years ago, I was mainly working as a music producer. So I come from like this standpoint of creating every day. And um, like I went through a long crypto trading phase, but then I got into AI and now I'm like, I find this old excitement about just waking up and having this, this feeling, okay, I can create basically anything I want now, even without becoming an expert in all the different fields. And right now I'm building a new product, which will um, basically help you to create a digital product with AI. And I created my first digital product and it took me such a long while. And you have to be really good at like safe page writing at creating a landing page at structuring everything and doing all these technical setup stuff. And right now I could do, uh, I can do all of these steps. I used, like, I used to do myself a couple of months ago and there's, there's been so much improvement on ChatGPT alone and with ChatGPT Vision, for example, that I now can just feed my new landing page into ChatGPT Vision and it will give me feedback. And basically it's removing all the bottlenecks 
I had in my head inside myself. And it's just like, it's so uh, crazy motivating for me to just see how fast this has evolved in the last couple of months. Because like, if you are a creative person, like, like I said, you removed basically all the bottlenecks you have before, because you, you can get to a like 70% level on most of the skills you need in a like regular business, I'd say. So you can get like the 80, 20 really, really fast. And, um, I think we had really hit it on the head, the nail on the head there. Um, it's just so exciting for me. I wake up every day and I think this really shows like how amazing this special moment in time is right now, because it's such a huge shift, but once you really start creating with it, um, it really feels magical. Really good points to make both Heather and Ole. I think that's all worthy of excitement. So just kind of like you mentioned there, the development that's happened in the last two months for, you know, Ollie's use case here, just being able to, in the last few months, streamline those processes. I do want to touch a little bit more on that. So given the recent seemingly light speed exponential growth of AI, there's been a lot of talk surrounding the regulation of artificial intelligence. Some voice concerns of the risks inherent to AI, especially those of security and privacy. In fact, just last month, President Biden issued an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence aimed at addressing some of those voice concerns. So I want to go to Gabriel here. Your company recently endorsed the executive order. Why is that? I'd, I'd also love to hear how Versus positions itself given the regulatory environment in AI, Gabriel. Um, I wish there was a, another word between endorse and not endorse um, because <laughs> it makes it sound like um, uh, uh, like whenever that term is used and it's used quite a bit in the world today that, that a party wholly agrees with something. So you get all kinds of open letters drafted. Um, we've seen over the last few years about you know what, how, how to regulate AI, whether to pause AI, whether not to pause, whether to advance open source versus closed and the rest. And you get all, a lot of people signing it and saying where they're, they're supporting um, some aspect of it. And the term endorse gets, gets kind of placed in there and it sounds like um, like a, a full thumbs up as opposed to kind of a meh, <laughs> better, better than not. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say better than not. So, so um, one, what's, what's impressive is that government moves at a glacial pace. Um, in this case, governments move, move faster to regulate or attempt to regulate something or begin the process of <laughs> uh of of of, of uh, that analysis faster than anything i've seen in, in my lifetime and i think it's 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 worth mentioning why so there's sort of three levels that we look at one is that there are near-term ethical issues because if you take all the data on the web which is filled with all kinds of unique bias and you put it into a system um essentially kind of the new google right you're just you're you're, you're downloading the web uh you then you're, you're running these millions of examples through a neural net and then you're getting this sort of statistical you know blended average it's like take the web put it in a blender and now you can ask this chat bot instead of asking google and the problem is of course if you have since it's taking the you know statistically significant averages of information you're going to get you know information that's more popular that there's more examples of um and so it's it's a it's a huge challenge that that you've got these underlying ethical issues around bias right um 
And so if, if, if someone wants to build, um, you know, uh, Chase Bank wants to build a loan ap approval application or agent or bot on top of uh, a, a transformer-based neural net architecture, um, and, um, and it starts denying people with uh, names that are unfamiliar because they're African or they're Indian or they're Filipino, um, then you, you get sort of, you have an accidentally racist agent because there's just not enough examples for the system to be able to uh, recognize uh, those and rate them appropriately, right? And so that's one problem. The other problem is accuracy, which is actually, you know, an ethical issue in the sense that if, if it's being used in applications that where critical decisions are being made, and it's just wrong or it confabulates or it hallucinates or makes stuff up. You know, you can really think of these things as more like simulation engines or they're, they're doing role playing. And so they're just kind of pretending, you know, they're kind of taking on a role and they're giving this sort of statistical blend. Um, there, there are deeper ethical issues in that if you have company A that builds a model that has a more left leaning um, as a result of human reinforcement learning, a more left-leaning feedback process versus a more right-leaning, then you're going to get a bias sort of on the political spectrum. And there's a much larger problem here just around ethics and bias, which is that do any of us really want the largest and most powerful companies in the world to come up with the sort of statistically average ethics upon which AIs are built? Wouldn't we prefer to have a plurality of ethics? Don't we want, if we're gonna say bias, don't we want a marketplace of bias? You know, at the end of the day, the entire stack that we're looking at is, is companies building a single machine that they hope to scale up to then human and then superhuman intelligence. This is much like the supercomputers of the 70s, but wouldn't we like the personal computing revolution to kind of come in here, like the personal intelligence revolution? Why can't we all have our own um, agents, right? Why does it have to be just sort of this cloud-based system that's a centralized system? I and mean, we've seen, we, you know, we're about to crank a thousand times more com com compute power into the hands of the most powerful parties. I'm not saying they're bad or wicked or evil. I'm saying centralized systems with more power have problems. And so at the heart of this, we've got these ethical issues because of the architectural nature of how to build these things and the exorbitant cost and energy that it takes to make and, and operate them. And versus we think there's a better way that's more akin to, to the World Wide Web as opposed to AOL or the personal computer instead of a supercomputer. Let everyone have their own and let them have their own biases. Learn on your data, learn on your perspectives, vote from your point of view. And now we've got, you know, something more like a, a democratic approach, not just like Anthropic's approach, which talks about constitutional AI, but who's constitutional AI? <laughs> like, and then you've got West versus East sort of perspectives. We're, we're seeing this play out in the world in real time where lots of parties have valid claims to being right and the others think that they're wrong. Um, so I, I don't see this as being a sustainable approach just on the ethics front. And a lot of government and regulatory officials are concerned about that. Secondly, you've got the economic factor, which is that as more tools become more powerful and more people can use these tools, people are more productive. We just we just heard Ellie uh, talking about that. Hey, I had to do all this stuff manually, and then all of a sudden I don't have to. So the automation functions of these technologies 
are going to significantly affect labor markets and capital. Now, how do we as a society start to plan for that? Do we think, you know, when you hear like, you know, 20% of, of jobs may be gone, that sounds pretty bad, but maybe acceptable. When you hear 50%, we think that's really bad. But what if we just said 100%, as Elon just said last week? Is that bad or is that really good? Because then, well, what's an economy at that point? So yeah, governments are wondering what to do about that. And finally, there's the existential threats. Again, because of the way these systems are architected, you have something called the reward function, which is basically a human telling the AI what it needs to do in order to get this little cookie. And when it gets the cookie, because it's done the right thing, um, which is what we told it to do, then that's really what it's focused on. And this results in what's often called the paperclip problem. Um, but you, you know, it's the idea that if you, you build an AI and say, hey, make as many paperclips as possible, then eventually it turns to all the organic material on the planet, including humans, and then it just keeps making paperclips till the end of the universe. Um, this is the unintended consequences piece where everyone in, in about a significant portion of people you kind of have in Silicon Valley right now, the Zoomers, hey, we should go as fast as possible. AI is going to get us to a world where 100% of people don't have to work and we're all you know, extremely healthy and everyone has what they need. And this is sort of a utopian perspective, but but not with, within, you know, within the realm of possibility and perhaps for the first time. And then you have the doomers who are essentially doing the opposite saying, hey, we can't control autonomous self-learning systems. <laughs> By the very nature of what we're building, we're gonna build something smarter than us that could have a different set of goals. And we could either be just an accidental thing in the way, like, hey, you're just here to make more paper clips for me, um, or it might have malicious intent. And then there's all kinds of debates and arguments we see on an hourly basis here on, on, uh, on X about the, the merits of both of those arguments. But this is why governments are extremely concerned and trying to figure out how to regulate it. So did we endorse the Biden uh, administration's proposal? Yes, we think that moving towards a world where we're starting to consider those three implications and the impact is good. Um, we think that 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 both the U.S. Um, regulated regulatory bodies and the EU and the rest of the world are a, are a little misguided at the moment because they keep thinking that the best way to regulate this is like a product. Hey, company, you are responsible for releasing a product that doesn't harm people, and if you if you if you do that, we're going to fine you, and we want to check and make sure ahead of time. But if you're talking about autonomous self-learning superintelligent algorithms, the cat's going to get away from you before you can catch it. And so we're saying that you have to be able to regulate the activities of autonomous uh, algorithms, let's say AI, in both software systems, their access to data, their access to devices, and what activities they can do in the physical world, whether that's track your heart patterns from your smartwatch, or you know, um, or or operate you know a thousand drones in a city, and so we think that there's a, a standards-based approach, which is what we've been pioneering for the last few years with the IEEE, that enables open standards like the standards that the web operates on today, like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and everything else that enable developers, manufacturers, international regulatory bodies, governments to have interoperability, enable innovation and functionality, but be able to determine for themselves what safeguards are appropriate and ensure that enforcement is something that happens in the in, in the abilities, limiting the abilities of what these systems can do, not just finding the companies that make them.
I think a lot of really good points there, Gabe, but I'm, I'm definitely going to want to come back to touch on some of that across the entire panel. But first, I do want to touch on one other concept within that realm of regulation that sparks a little bit of a little bit of controversy and back and forth. And that's the topic of explainability. So many have voiced the concern that large language models like ChatGPT lack explainability and that transparency by companies such as OpenAI is low. Of note, the Foundation Model Transparency Index 100-point scoring system designed by a multidisciplinary team from Stanford, MIT, and Princeton found that none of the models from 10 major companies such as Meta, OpenAI, Anthropic, and Amazon scored above a 54 out of 100, which arguably isn't all that great when you're kind of gauging for transparency. So I'm going to kick this one around the panel. We'll start with Stu and then Alex and Gabe. Why are explainability and transparency so important? And how is it that companies can be compliant with a shifting regulatory landscape without them? Is this something that you know hackers, VC, or companies even care about? And I'll, I'll admit I'm out of my depth on some of the technical nuances with explainability because it can mean quite a few things. But I'll just say from like the kind of user perspective and the trust perspective, I think the prime as these systems become better and their answers become more plausible and even become more factual and accurate already. I mean, we're already seeing this and you see with a product like ChatGPT, uh, people default to trusting and then maybe verifying what it's telling them, if, if at all, usually not. And so for me, explainability is very important from uh, the like factual standpoint of is the information I'm being given by this model accurate? What's it based off of? And like, how can I be sure that's credible? Now, this obviously is not a new problem. I don't think, uh, you know, X is a terribly reliable source of accurate information either. It's very hit or miss. Um, but I do think when it's a computer program that like humans have built, it's pretty important to be able to explain uh, why it's giving you the answer it's giving. But anyways, the actual technical details are incredibly sticky and challenging because it's a, you know, probabilistic kind of math uh, calculation with a un, you know, incomprehensible amount of inputs. And it's very difficult to be deterministic and understand what causes an output. So that I will leave to the experts. But from the user perspective, I think it's just like, is the information I'm being given trustworthy? Where's the AI learning it from? That's going to be, I think, uh, pretty critical. Good point, Stu. Alex, did you have anything to add to what Stu said? Yeah. So uh, from my perspective, or, uh, and I guess from users who use AgentOps, so just uh, to kind of restate uh, what we're working on, uh, we're building an observability and testing and a safety platform for AI agents. Uh, one main consideration is just that these things don't behave as expected uh, because of the stochastic nature of LLMs. They don't always return the same outputs every single time. Uh, but on top of that, it's like they're not, these are generalized models, but they're not exactly made for use cases that they were trained for. Uh, GPT is um, it's an autoregressive model. It basically takes a lot of text and tries to predict next token based on what it's seen in the past. But when you give it high level tasks, such as creating an instruction list or writing code, or actually like kind of creating a workflow, 
uh, it can just behave in unexpected ways. Uh, and so I, I see kind of like two paths here, right? So path number one is the regulatory path in which basically we, we have auditors or regulators who go into companies developing foundational models uh, or foundation models, that's the technical term, uh, or you, you have people who are actually auditing the people building AI companies and making sure that they're operating in safe ways that are not gonna cause paperclip problems. Uh, secondarily is I think, and this is what I, not a lot of people are talking about, but I think it's actually what's going to happen. You're going to see organic resistance towards like hostile or dangerous models uh, in the same way that we have an entire industry called cybersecurity that's designed to protect people from malware and uh, viruses and just uh, state actors who are trying to infiltrate systems. We're going to start to see a, uh, a new layer and vertical of companies that basically just are designed to protect against rogue or violent or dangerous agentic systems. Uh, so there's a few companies doing this right now. Uh, Agent Office, we consider ourselves under that umbrella, but there is uh, Guardrails AI. You have Prompt Armor, which is a new startup that just came out. They do Honeypot and prompt injection detection. Um, and uh, essentially, like, we're, we're seeing a lot of people understanding that these things are not exactly safe right out of the box. And what I mean by safe is not you know, inherently dangerous. It's just that they're unpredictable and anything that's unpredictable can possibly cost you a lot of money. So uh, people are kind of building in tandem with uh, tooling and safety guidelines and benchmarks. Uh, and that's gonna lead us down, I think kind of a more equilibrium path rather than um, yeah, I guess like a, a Luddite versus two, you know, uh, AI apocalypse path. So that, that's my take on it. And a good take to have. I'd say thank you, Alex, and thank you, Stu. Gabe, did you have anything to add here on explainability and transparency before I kick the next question over to Henry? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I think um, just for everyone listening, the, the problem is that you took all the data and you put it in a blender. And whatever was statistically the highest sort of point in that data is what the 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 net, the, the model thinks, I don't say thinks, offers up <laughs> as the answer, right? And so, um, and then based on your prompt, it, it'll offer up a, a handful of sort of different ways of saying that, but but it's, 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 it's not any meaningfully different than when you're typing in autocorrect and you say, hey, I'll see you next. And it says week, because week is the most common thing that people put there, but you like, no, Tuesday, right? And so the, the problem is it's, it's when a, these, we're talking about systems that are, we, we say artificial intelligence, but that's not like neither of those words actually mean the important part of this. What's important is autonomous decision maker or autonomous actor. The fact that they're gonna make decisions by themselves and they're gonna operate everything in our world that is currently run on software. That means like, you know, your toaster and your computer and yeah, your accounting system and maybe your design, you know, platform, but also like the electrical grid and your cars and all the drones and the supply chain and our financial systems and our government systems, right? And so the problem with the explainability thing is that if you build a system that's essentially a giant black box and it makes a decision, you can't say, well, explain your decision to me. And then it gives you a plausible answer and go, hey, that sounded good because people do that all the time and they're lying, <laughs> right? So the, the real problem is that you don't know, and it doesn't know what the underlying data was that it used to inform that decision. Was that information correct? Was that information biased? Is that information accurate? Did it, for, before you get to, did it interpret it properly? So what, what went into the sausage, right? And we don't know because it's just sausage now. 
And so the problem is explainability is an afterthought. And so all of the solutions that we have, just like cybersecurity today, because security was an afterthought for all of our digital networks over the last 35 years, is that it, it, once if the wolf's already in the hen house, you're, you're, you're screwed, right? And so there's a lot of money spent on security online, but frankly, we don't have the um, luxury in my opinion, of building systems where we talk about not only autonomous decision makers, but ones that can supersede human intelligence that are going to be in the network. You have to be able to basically enable something that can prevent that from happening in the first place. That isn't an afterthought. That is a forethought. And so, as as um, as you just said, that, that you know, there's two paths, right? Well, there's there's let companies regulate themselves, or let regulators, you know, the government step in. And the truth is, there that is not the only options. You know, there's an option that is neither politically motivated nor economically incentivized, and that's standards. And standards are free and open. And the whole world runs on them. And you can both enable economic incentives and innovation and political, uh, or let's say legal decisions or regulatory law can be drafted on that. That's why we have like, you know, we went through something similar when electricity came out. Everyone was panicked because the basic pitch was we've captured lightning and we're routing it into your house now so that you can like read at night and, and cook stuff and, you know, everything that electricity enabled. But there was tons of fear around that because people's houses were burning down and people were being electrocuted. And it was the IEEE um, that ended up standardizing grounds. So when we grounded elect electricity and we had standard voltage that everyone could rely on, all of the people that were making things that relied on electricity, developers and designers from lamps to the TVs to the hair dryers to you know, the, the, the computers that we use today, um, all know what to specification to develop to. This creates more innovation and more economic development. At the same time, every building that's built to code um, that has electricity in it, builds it to that IEEE standard. And these are the underlying sort of um, foundations of society, these technical foundations that enable both sides. So, you know, being caught in this sort of binary, you know, the, let the market decide, let the government decide, no, let's 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 have a a completely open standard that's at the base of these things that enables explainability and security by default, and that's the IEEE standard that that's being developed right now in the P twenty eight seventy four working group, and versus partner with Dentons, the largest law firm in the world, um, to basically put an eighty page report out called the Future of Global AI Governance this summer, um, you know that basically outlines why this third path to um, you know, explainable uh, and governable uh, artificial intelligence is actually allows both the doomers and the zoomers to get what they want. Yes, let's go faster, <laughs> let's go bigger, but let's go safer. And let's go in ways that we can are interpretable and we can understand. I think that was a pretty concise and clear way to put things. Thank you, Gabe. So kind of speaking on the same vein of explainability in a way, Generative art AIs specifically have had a ton of issues with regards to copyright, source material, intellectual property in general. Now, in that realm of AI art, one fear held by some artists and creators is that the ease with which the general layman can create media and content with prompts will cut into their market share as artists and creators. 
So Heather, you have a lot of expertise kind of in this whole realm. Are the fears held by some creators justified? In your opinion, Heather, does the tip of the fingers, the nature of creating AI art threaten the livelihood of artists and creators at all? Um, I think that it just depends. I think in a way it'd be naive to say that it does not threaten them, but it also enables them and gives the artists tools to use for their own art because they will be they will still have that ability it can't you can't direct it to create something that's exactly the what you want the same way that a human can do that but uh creatives can use these tools to help assist them to get better and to be able to produce more or to to brainstorm ideas uh, mood boards and things like that, just to kind of as like a, to stimulate creativity. Um, so I think there's more, it needs to be more education overall, because a lot of people, it's kind of like who, if you, you're either for or against, but it doesn't have to be like that. And we're already, I think more people need to understand what generative AI they're already using and probably don't realize it or think of it like that to create art. So you can talk to ChatGPT and have Dolly create something for you, but you're not going to be able to recreate it exactly. And it just depends on what the tool is that you're, what, what are, what's the output that you're looking for? But you can also use it, artists, photographers, for different things to cut the prices if you don't have to spend money on a studio for a background, um, you know, for product placement or things like that. If you can create your own uh, stock video, stock slides or video, uh, those types of things, it's it's kind of adding to your potential productivity and also cutting back so that more people have the opportunity to participate in that marketplace. Um, they can do more. You can take on more jobs. You can take on gigs or within your workplace, find ways to streamline your workflow in order to create what you want to create. You still have to go back over it and fine tune it. You're going to have to touch it up and add little details. So I don't think that it has to be necessarily, it's going to just take everything away. It's not going to do that because it's not that good. It, we can create some amazing things, but it's not going to take the place of actual, like for AI film, that's great, but it's not going to replace film. It's not going to replace script writers. It's not going to replace, um, you know, artists or, or animators. If they can use it in conjunction with their jobs and it doesn't have to be where some people know how to do it. And when you're it's coming from the fingertips, it's not that simple, of course. I'm a pharmacist. It's like when people ask, why does it take you so long? All you have to do is, you know, put the pills in a bottle. That's not all you have to do. <laughs> you have to do a lot more. So I think that um, I w I'm not as worried about that, but hopefully people can come to accept it a little bit more and understand how they can use it in their own workflow. So it kind of sounds like you're, you're of the mind that in some ways it could be threatening to these creators, but it's more of a tool that should be more embraced moving forward to kind of augment what they already do. Yes. Where some businesses, instead of hiring an artist for something to create something, they might just go ahead and create their own logo or their create their own ad. They can do things like that. But um, so in that way, yes, it's going to take away those uh, available jobs, available gigs, or even within your workplace, if the company decides to, to streamline their everything and to cut back 
re, you know, restructure because they don't need the those particular creative people. It's um, that that is a threatening thing, and there I don't think that there's any way to say that it's not. Perfect. Thank you, Heather. Ole, would you would you agree with that? I'd love your thoughts here as well. Should creators embrace these models in tech, or, or are some of those fears, in your opinion, justified? And then, Stu, I did see your hand. I'll kick to you next. I'd say I agree on the point that it, it, is, it is a threat in a way. And for example, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's running a ghostwriting agency, mainly for a newsletter content and for, for X content. And I can tell you, like, those guys, they have... I'd say like 5x the output of other agencies. And so it's crazy. They're just, their output is so incredibly high. The quality is super high. And, but just like the sheer amount of stuff they can produce is mind boggling. And I think um, we reached that point when, let's say you are a creator and you don't want to embrace AI. And you're like, okay, I don't want to do that. It's, I want to do my own stuff. I think you'll get to the point that you see your competition just become so much faster. And so much further ahead, it's, it's this old meme in AI, right? Like this overused Twitter uh, hook in terms of uh, like use AI or you're going to get left behind. It's a bit cringe, but once you see it firsthand that is happening right now, um, it becomes much more real. So I think if you are a creator, and for me, a creator is a copywriter, is a music producer. Um, so everyone basically creating anything, I think you have to look at how to include in your WordPress because once once you've done it, you don't want to miss it anymore. And I I think like the the great opportunity here is that it will also enable creators that don't have a particular skill that say um if you wanna if you wanna sorry my connection was lost. Can you still hear me? Yep, can still yeah. hear you. Okay, sorry, something's wrong with my with my connection here. Um, so what I want to say, I think like the the big unlock here is, um, like even a year ago, you couldn't do any coding without knowing a, a programming language, and I think it's the same thing. It's true now for anything when it comes to to creation. So now you can do design without learning Illustrator or Photoshop. You can just use use Midjourney, and that's like the big opportunity here that people that couldn't do the work before and now have this new tool. And so they will position themselves differently in a market. And I think in the end, the market will always decide where the value is. And um, what I can tell right now is it's really like those people using AI and like really going hardcore into it. Um, they kind of really carve out the niche for themselves and they are more productive and they have more output. And also the quality is getting higher and higher and higher. So. I agree with Heather saying, okay, there will always be a place for script writers. There will always be a place for people working um, in film. But I'd argue like it's advancing at such a rapid pace and the quality is increasing also like, on such a, in such a um, short amount of time that I think in the future, almost every creator, maybe even maybe everyone has to use AI just to kind of be on the same level in terms of productivity and it will find its way into everyone's workflow. Thank you, Ole. Stu? Yeah, I'll continue this thread and just add a couple of thoughts. And I, I think it's like the impacts are very complicated and almost subtle um, because the floor 
a couple things happen. When more people have access to creative tools and someone who otherwise maybe wouldn't have learned Photoshop, for example, now has access to Canva, uh, people who weren't designers before all of a sudden can produce you know, decent design. Um, and as a consequence, the expectation almost from the consumer side goes up. Like if you're running a company right now, some mid-sized company, you're probably thinking about like, how do we make sure our blog is populated with really high quality resources for customers? How do we launch a podcast that our customers will love? Like what's our you know, short form video strategy? You're, you're basically building like a media arm uh, at your company. And that's not completely new, but I think the, the mediums you move into, the amount of production you're, you're doing in-house, the amount you're investing in it just generally in organic media has to be you know, just a multiple of what it would have been 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago. And I think that's partly a consequence of like, we now just have better creative tools. We can all get to something viable uh, much more quickly. On the content side though, why, why I think kind of writers and creators have, have some job security, at least people who keep kind of upskilling, is that the expectation of what quality is will go up. I think very few, I think it's extraordinarily rare to actually come across a piece of content that like hits you directly. You know, like when was the last time you, I don't know, watched a YouTube video or discovered a new podcast that just like spoke to your core? I can, I, I remember the last time I discovered this podcast called Founders. It was like a year ago. And I was like, holy shit, where has this been? I basically forgot about every other podcast and just dove into that. Anyway, so it's extremely rare. I think quality... There's a lot of people posting on LinkedIn, a lot of people tweeting, a lot of people like writing a Substack, but actually quality is still incredibly rare. Most people don't hit it. And AI, I think, can get more people to uh, a, higher, a higher floor, essentially. So that's, that's what's exciting to me. I don't, I don't think there's a fixed amount of demand for these things. I think it, there's this always morphing, growing uh, demand that the market will pull out and writers and creators will always just be at the edge of uh, our current capabilities with tools. That's kind of... Myri, but all I guess all bets are off when we have true AGI that you know can can do everything for us. But until then, it's going to be fun. Good deal, thank you, Stu. Alex, do you have anything to add to what Heather, Ole, and Stu said? Yeah, I have a something of a unique perspective. As I uh, we actually managed a Chat GPT plugin um, called Chat OCR. Uh, so Chat GPT plugins for those unfamiliar are kind of like extendable tools that OpenAI has enabled that allow users to uh, just kind of give extra kind of API call functionality to their, um, their ChatGPT experience. So for example, there's a web search plugin. There's a, um, there's a plugin that can like book vacations on Kayak for you, so on and so forth. Um, and uh, just kind of like one perspective I have uh, as kind of like a developer that's built on top of the OpenAI platform uh, and seeing users who are kind of like plugging these tools together is we're seeing the rise of a new like prosumer uh, market segment. So these are folks who are like, they're very exploratory with the tools and they're learning like kind of unique ways to create their own workflows enhanced by AI. Uh, so just kind of a cool example that we saw is uh, Chat OCR is a plugin that lets you upload documents and photographs with text on it and then read that text in the chat GPT. So this can be stuff like faxes or scans or handwriting, something you can't traditionally select with your cursor. Uh, and one interesting use case I saw is like a high school teacher was grading uh, their students' essays, which were handwritten essays. 
and they were using the OCR in ChatGPT to uh, actually scan the handwriting and then put it into a legible format. Uh, so that's kind of like, you know, a step level advancement that, you know, probably saves them a lot of time in terms of grading. Uh, I, I don't know whether or not they were using ChatGPT to actually do the grading for them, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that happened. Uh, but just kind of secondarily, we're seeing a lot of users just from like, not large enterprises, but just kind of like small workshops, a lot of indie debt, um, just kind of like people who are individual contractors. We're using these sorts of tools in ways that we haven't seen before. Uh, and it's just exciting to see like, most people out in the in the general world don't know what AI is, uh, and when you show them ChatGPT, it's like showing fire to a caveman, and 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 I mean that kind of like in a, a kind of a tongue in cheek way, but people really don't know what to do with it, uh, and a lot of it is kind of around the the phrasing. AI is like kind of scary, you know. You see it in the crazy movies and stuff, uh, but what we're probably just going to see more and more of is kind of your standard tools getting upgraded in ways that people don't know AI is behind the scenes, but it really is. So uh, I think just broadly speaking, we're gonna see like kind of two classes of software emerge. Number one is you're gonna see like these entirely end-to-end -end agentic workflows, which is kind of more on the, the GPTs, marketplace sides of things, agents, so on and so forth. But then you're gonna just see like standard tools get better and better. Uh, so this is gonna be like your phone, it gets better and better every time Google decides to release a new AI feature without telling anyone, but also just kind of like general software is going to have chat with your search engine rather than like keyword search. It's going to be like chat search. Uh, and you're going to be able to have like better, better queries when it comes to like uh, reading PDFs and books and so on and so forth. So that's that's the, the bifurcation I'm seeing, which is, you know, you have the full agent workflows going on, but you also do just like the, the gradual improvement of standard products. Thank you, Alex. So I do want to kind of pivot back to you here, Gabe, kind of on this topic, you know, involving entrepreneurs, creators, use cases of AI in general. As an employee at Unusual Whales, we're all big fans here of bridging the gap for, you know, the little guys versus the big corporations, the big investor agencies. <clears throat> Gabe, how is Versus AI currently planning or or in your own way there at Versus AI bridging the gap for creators like Heather or entrepreneurs like Ole? Well, what we're building is a bit different than what um, everyone's talking about today. It's about as different um, as the, uh, the BlackBerry is than was to the iPhone. So today's AI is really based on neural nets that have to learn on lots and lots of data. They require these massive industrial architectures, um, infrastructure to be able to both train and operate and billions of dollars to even get into the game. What everyone gets right now, I know we've heard the word agents a few times, is not agents, uh, they're bots. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, an agent is something that can uh, in, let's say, in have a mental model of the world and weigh uh, its decision-making, right? And the very nature of how transformers are designed, uh, the way deep learning works, is you're, you're getting a statistical output. It's pre-baked. I mean, literally GPT stands for general pre-trained transformer. Once they ship it, it never learns again. It only learns in the lab, 
It doesn't learn in the world. What we want, what everyone here wants, is genuinely intelligent and general intelligent agents. What I mean by that are agents that can learn on any data set, right? Whether that data is text, whether that data is audio, whether that data is three-dimensional data sets, and can build kind of like we do in our minds, a kind of world model upon which these agents can run predictions, they can plan, they can consider the consequences of their actions, right? Like we do, like, like all biological intelligence does. And so what Versus is, is doing with our new genius platform, which we, we launched uh, last month with, with our first uh, private beta, we're bringing 10 uh, exclusive customers in to test some very large ones, some small ones. And then in the spring, we intend to roll this out as a developer platform uh, that enables uh, small and large developers of any stripe to actually build generally intelligent agents that can learn and operate on your data, that can act in digital domains with the kind of applications we've heard about today, but also can be embodied in robots and drones and cars and others. Um, and so it can learn, you know, physical information as much as logical information and be able to enable that. And so what, what, what that does is that um, allows you to have a new approach to generating not just content, but generating agents themselves that are generating world models upon which they can then act on in the, in the digital and the physical world. This is, this is like, you know, the, the big thing that the, that the phone companies didn't get, that Apple understood uh, and enabled the ecosystem of app developers, you know, that we have today is that BlackBerry, Motorola, and Nokia, the big players at the time, thought that the move was you take a phone and you add the internet to it, right? And what Apple understood was you take a small computer, first you got to build it smaller than ever, right? And the computer is designed to interact with the internet and you add the phone as an app. And then you enable an ecosystem that enables millions of developers to build their own apps. And that builds a marketplace, right? And instead of it just being a sort of single, uh, single you know, device with like one or two capabilities, it's a device with millions of capabilities and everyone can customize it themselves. And in that way, even users of an iPhone today, everyone has their own sort of custom version of an iPhone, right? And it's the fact that they made an operating system that enabled that that both the consumer and the developer could use. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're, Genius is, is designed to be a platform, again, kind of like an operating system for the development of agents. And as Heather mentioned, the bar here isn't just for the tens of millions of software developers out there. If we do a really good job, um, which we can do even by combining it with things like LLMs, even though these types of technologies will perhaps eclipse them in the next couple of years, uh, it means that now you've got billions of people that can start creating and developing custom solutions and applications and sharing them in the same way we see OpenAI trying to do that with sort of um, with their GPTs platform. But notice they didn't come out and say agents. They came out and said GPTs, which is just like another way of saying like chat GPT, which is, which is a chat bot. And so these are early days and early tools. And we, and, but mostly this is stuff built on 70 year old technology that's older than the internet. The, the essence of what neural nets are. And the most recent innovations have radically accelerated these capabilities. But what we're doing at Versus is 
basically emerging from a different field, not from computer science, trying to mimic some attributes of human cognition, but instead understanding how human cognition works coming from the realm of neuroscience and then applying that to software. So what we're going to get and what we hope to enable everyone here to do is to build their own agents for anything and be able to combine and share these in a new sort of marketplace of intelligence. Sounds like a handful. I'm glad you guys are tackling that because I know if I were ever thrown into your shoes, I would be more lost than anyone could imagine, Gabe. Well, I'm wearing slippers right now, so don't worry about it. So something I wanted to do here as well, kind of before we send folks off into the ether, is I kind of wanted to go down the list of each panelist that's with us here and just kind of touch on you know, anything that we may not have gotten to during this specific panel, any important topic that you feel should be at least touched on here before we send people on their way. Um, and again, as I said at the top, if you have anything coming out that you want to plug, anything you're writing, anything you're working on, please feel free to let our listeners know about that here. So to start us off here, we'll actually go right back to you, Gabe. Anything you wanted to touch on, anything about verses you wanted to mention, please feel free to do so. Well, first of all, I just want to thank everyone and our, our whole panel for joining. Um, and uh, it was, it has been a pleasure to, to learn more about each of you and what you're doing and we'll probably follow up with, with you folks independently. Um, you know, cause at the end of the day, we're all pioneers. <laughs> it's all frontier work. And, um, and so I think the many hands is the, is the right way to do this here, which is why we want to build a, a developer platform that really, um, you know, takes the underlying um, model of what AI is attempting to do, but kind of flip it on its ear. Like for the last um, decade and change, people use things like PyTorch and TensorFlow. That, that these are the sort of frameworks that we use to develop um, uh, to develop AI. I mean, this is ChatGPT is built on off from from PyTorch, right? What we're doing is we're we're, we're taking the underlying um, algorithms that we've been able to learn uh, about how biological intelligence works and build a new type of framework, which we call Genius, which is what we're testing now. We'll be rolling out in the spring uh, for public beta and then further into the rest of the year that we think enables um, a whole new generation of truly intelligent software that can learn and adapt in real time. That's lightweight, that's hyper-efficient, that can be combined and uh, shared uh, over networks that collaborate together in powerful ways. And I think that what's really groundbreaking about this is in a way, when we're talking about the kinds of agents we're talking about, these are agents that can learn on any data. Um, Alex or someone earlier said, you know, hey, there, there are no real moats in the current AI space. And I think that that's a fair analysis. But I would argue where the moats are, are the, mo the moats are the data. And these other systems basically learn on public data. And then you got to figure out how to fine tune them on your data. They don't have memory. So you got to use third party databases like Pinecone and Weaviate. You got, they don't have really good frameworks for building stuff. So I know that some of the other folks here on the call have used Langchain and, and, and other sort of pipelines. 
And then unfortunately, the underlying models are changing constantly, so they're not well supported. So all you know, early developers on this stuff are basically trying to build on some version of quicksand and hope that they can find rock along the way. Well, it'll take us some time, but we're hoping to basically provide that alternative, a solid foundation for building general intelligent agents. And I, I don't think that the current definition of AGI is accurate because it just sort of presumes that what we want to do is build human-like intelligence. But in reality, the intelligence of, 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 of nature has applied to every kind of niche we can imagine, from slime mold, you know, and their ability to actually navigate better than we've, any subway system we've ever designed, or, or bats that can fly better than any drone, right, or ants you know, or swarms of fish that can collaborate together in ways that, you know, we can't do. What if we could apply natural intelligence into software? What if general intelligence meant that it could generally learn in any niche over any data set? This is a new definition of AGI, I think, that transcends the current definition. And you could argue that Genius, you know, the platform that we're building is not AGI and Versus is not building AGI. We're building a platform that will allow you to do that. And that's that's our vision. And a beautiful vision it is, Gabe. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks for all of your input today as well. Uh, I don't think the space would have been the same without you. Yeah, well, you know, we, we, uh, we're the sponsor, so yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank everyone for coming. Um, I think you know. Uh, I want to thank uh, Unusual Whales for for hosting us. Um, I look forward to maybe doing doing a few of these in in the near future, and hopefully everyone will come back and and come along on the ride with us. Whether you're looking, you know, to to join us in the markets or join us on the on the developer side, um, please come to versus.ai and sign up for the Genius Beta, so you can get first in line when we start to roll this out next year. And otherwise, um, you know, uh, have a great rest of your week. Everybody, definitely check that out. They're working on a lot of really cool stuff, as he just described. So next, Heather, please, any topics that we didn't maybe touch on that you wish would have been touched on here at the end? And, and again, anything you're working on, please feel free to share. Thank you. Thank you again for um, sponsoring this uh, versus. And thank you for Unusual Whales for hosting this. This is a great opportunity for people to come together that wouldn't normally be together. And I really appreciate this uh, chance to do that. And um, I, as for topics, I would just say uh, people, you know, be curious about other areas that you're not involved with. Learn about what the different people are doing and what, you know, there's not, shouldn't be a divide between developers and creatives and uh, writers, marketing. Um, everybody try to see uh, like just different things that are going on that you might be able to use yourself with different types of technology that's uh, available right now. Um, there's a lot of cross-pollination with that. So I encourage that. Um, as for this type of space, I would invite everyone to come to my space on Friday and also get in touch with me. Let me know if you want to talk about um, your tool. We have a great panel and we try to you know, bring in different founders or brands or experts just to talk about these, you know, what's going on, just to add to the conversation. It's kind of like somebody described it as continuing education on a Friday afternoon, evening. Um, so please come every Friday, 5 p.m. And we usually go about two hours, I warn you. 
but also uh, today I'm going to be host. I'm going to be in a space uh, at three about thirty minutes from now with Hive Three. I'm an ambassador for Hive Three, which is the first competitive generative AI league. So what we're doing right now, I have a challenge that I'm co-hosting with them. It's to create a movie, a movie poster for a, a hypothetical movie. Um, and that's what we're doing is trying to encourage people to learn how to use generative AI for in a competitive way. It's for cash. Top prize is $2,500. Uh, second prize, it goes down, but the total pool is $5,000. This league has a lot of brands that are involved. Last week, Alan is here in the room, Alan T. He won Crumble Cookies, was our brand first brand challenge of the, to open the season. And so we have brands right now that are looking, trying to see what will happen with generative AI. What types of, you know, creative content can people come up with in order to, by using generative AI, what's happening is they're kind of watching and waiting. There's about 16, 17 corporate sponsors. They want to see what happens before they kind of jump into that pool of the possible, you know, things. So people that are in this room right now, anybody can, it's free, completely free. You can join um, and just come in, you know, submit something, but it's a pretty cool way to have people learn how to use multiple different tools and to push the boundaries of generative AI. So um, it, that my challenge will open on Friday at noon and it'll run until Tuesday. So, or Monday, I'm sorry, Monday at noon. So Friday till Monday at noon. And you just, you generate a movie poster, that's it. But it's, you know, some different details that I'll go over and be posting about. But I encourage people to just kind of, if nothing else, watch and see what happens just so you can see some of the creative ideas people come up with. Crumble Cookies is now going to use Alan's uh, ads that he created in their next campaign. So they wanted a fresh design. It's just another opportunity for using generative AI. That sounds really fun, Heather. Definitely check that out, folks. And check out those panels that Heather hosts on Fridays, 5 p.m. Next, Stu, is there anything you've got coming down the pipeline? Any topics you wanted to touch up on here? Well, I, I'm sure this has been, a, you know, said before, but I genuinely think today more than any other kind of year or certainly decade uh, that I've been alive, but working in tech uh, is the most exciting time to be building and uh, if nothing else, trying to educate yourself on what's going on with the state of the art in software and technology generally. Um, I think we're just like, you know, the history book is being written and we're in the first paragraph of the introduction on this totally new, you know, chapter for our species. I mean, I really think what's happening is like just the first little inkling of what's to come. Um, so anyways, whatever your kind of discipline is, whatever you do professionally, um, whatever your level of technical savvy is, I think just constantly be asking yourself, like, could I use ChatGPT to help me with this? Is there another AI tool that might be able to assist me? What can't I do that I would like to be able to do with this technology? And if you do that, I think you'll amaze yourself at what's possible today, but also what feels, what we're seeing glimmers of uh, being possible tomorrow. So anyways, I just like, don't sleep on it. You know, maybe don't even sleep at all. Just uh, uh, totally surround yourself with what's going on. So anyways, great time to be alive. 
go out and build something cool. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming, Stu. Ola, anything you wanted to add here? Yeah, Stu just said exactly what I had in my head as well. <laughs> so I would I also just wanted to um, just uh, talk to the audience mainly. And because I was like one year ago, um, I watched AI kind of from the sidelines at the beginning. And I felt a little bit intimidated as well. And it felt like this huge thing to start. I actually bought a course about it and I watched the first lesson. I was like, oh, God, this, this seems too big for me right now. And it took me another month to get started. And then it became my business. Um, so I just want to kind of empower everyone in the audience, even if you have been sitting on the sidelines and even if you thought this is all moving so fast and you don't know where to start, um, I would just suggest just start somewhere. Just take 10 minutes each day, sit in front of ChatGPT, just try out some stuff, try to create anything, try to create um, an image with Midjourney or with Dali. So I think the most important part really is just to get started. You don't have to have a direction. You don't have to have like any background. So I think it's such an amazing point in time where just getting started is already, um, you're already ahead of most people if you just do that. So yeah, I just wanted to take the last couple of minutes here um, to really motivate everyone in the audience. If you haven't been using it, because there, is a youth, there, there are a lot of people who haven't been using it at all. And I think that's what most people miss because we all just move inside our little bubble of people being at the forefront and thinking about LLMs the whole day. Most people still don't use it. So if you're one of them tomorrow or maybe even today, um, give it a try. You won't regret it. And once it gets into your life, you won't, you don't want to miss it anymore. And, uh, yeah, thanks for hosting this space. It was a lot of fun. It was very inspirational to listen to all the speakers. Yeah. So I hope to be part of this again. And thank you so much for coming. Ole. I really liked having your input, especially from your unique point of view that you shared today. Alex, is there anything that you wanted to add here at the end before we send folks on their way into the afternoon? Yeah, sure. So uh, like AI models, uh, I learn best from example. So uh, not to self-promote too much, but uh, if you go to my profile on my highlights tab, I actually do uh, what I call hack reporting, where in San Francisco, almost every week and weekend, there's a hackathon going on. New company drops an API. OpenAI just dropped a ton of uh, new goodies with Dev Day last week. We hosted an emergency hackathon there, and uh, I post these little Twitter threads showing off the cool projects that people are building. So if you feel like you want to get inspired or see what people are hacking away on, what's possible to build within 24 to 48 hours, definitely check out my, uh, my profile on the highlights tab. Um, a lot of people seem to like that. Uh, but also, if you're building anything in the AI agent space, I would love to get in touch. Uh, we run a, uh, a private community on Twitter, about 200 plus um, AI agent developers, where we have kind of very deep, in-depth discussions about technology choices, problems, patterns, etc. cetera. Uh, so if you're building AI agents or if you're looking to build AI agents, definitely get in touch with me. would love to have a chat. Uh, and yeah, thanks so much for having this space. This was super fun. Uh, learned a lot. And uh, I hope everybody else uh, also got as much info out of it as I did. 
Absolutely, Alex. Thank you for coming. And again, everybody, thanks to Versus AI and Gabriel here for lending his expertise, sponsoring this space and making it possible. I just want to thank every single panelist for giving their input today. If you came in late or feel like you missed anything, you didn't miss anything at all. This will be uploaded later today as an Unusual Whales podcast episode on both Spotify and Apple Pod, as well as YouTube. And again, everybody, check out everybody who spoke today if you have even the slightest interest in artificial intelligence or the use cases or things that people are working on in the AI space. The panelists we had today, I, I genuinely can't think of anybody better than them to be paying attention to as we kind of navigate how fast things are developing. And once again, thank you to Versus AI and Gabriel for sponsoring this space, making it possible, and sharing his expertise with us here today. Have a great rest of your day, folks. Thanks for coming.